sequence. Well, good evening, everyone. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 1 tonight, so if you have a Bible, it will be helpful. If you go there, it will also be on the screen, and we are going to read the entire chapter. So heads up, it's like 50 or 53 verses, so we're going to read the whole thing. And I'm saying that because I'm going to do an introduction. So this is an introduction to my introduction before I even get to the passage. And I'm saying all that because if you're taking time tonight, as some people do, don't start your clock until we finish the Bible reading, I pray, and then we'll preach. Deal? So we're going to be starting a new series looking at the life of Solomon. I've never done Solomon before, but we're going to be looking at 1 Kings, and we're going to work our way from chapter 1 right through to chapter 11, which takes up the whole life of Saul. So that's the first half of the first book of Kings is dominated by this character called Saul. And in those first 11 chapters, you're going to see the very best and the very worst of Saul. You're going to be introduced to a king that reigned, the third king that reigned over Israel some 3,000 years ago. You're going to see the best. You're going to see the worst. You're going to see one of the wisest kings of the Old Testament. In fact, 1 Kings 10, 23 says, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all other kings of the earth. Greater in riches, greater in wisdom. Did you know his riches that every year he got donated to him 730,000 ounces or 20 ton of gold every single year? That's a nice pay package. God appeared to Solomon twice in 1 Kings, and we'll see that. So dramatic was God's encounter that normal church halted. Normal practices, normal religious ceremonies had to stop because God actually turned up in such a powerful way in the temple that all things stopped. The temple which Solomon famously built, an extravagant Temple, a temple that took over seven years to build, employed something like eight or 180,000 people to make this. And if you were to put a price on it in today's money, it was somewhere between 150 to 215 billion dollars. If only we had an exhibition that showed that temple, and we do. There's a wee plug for free there. Come along and see that. We're going to see the best of Solomon and the worst of Solomon. A Solomon who had a whopping 700 wives and 300 mistresses and still found the time to write three books of the Bible, Song of Songs, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. But as we come to chapter one tonight, you're going to read the story of how Solomon almost didn't become king. You're going to see a crisis of the kingdom. And it looks like in this chapter that Solomon isn't going to become king because there's forces at play in this and they are hell-bent on destroying Solomon and destroying David's kingdom. So let's go to chapter one and read this passage together. 1 Kings chapter one. When King David was very old, he could not keep warm even when they put covers over him. So his attendant said to him, let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. 
She can lie beside him so that our Lord the King may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman and they found Abishag the Shimonite and brought her to the king. This woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. Now, Adjaniah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Adonijah conferred with Joab, the son of Suriah, and with Abathar, the priest, and they gave him their support. Besedoch, the priest, Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, Nathan, the prophet, Shimei, and Rhea, and David's special guards did not join Adonijah. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fatted calves at the stone of Suheleth, near Enrogel. He invited his brothers, the king's son, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaniah or the special guard or his brother Solomon. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king and our Lord David knows nothing about it? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go into the king David and say to him, my lord the king, did you not swear to me your servant? Surely Solomon, will, surely Solomon your son shall be king after me and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adjaniah become king? While you are still there talking to the king, I will come in and add my word to what you have said. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room. And Abishag the Shimonite was attending him. Bathsheba bowed down, prostrating herself before the king. What do you want? The king asked. She said to him, my lord, you yourself swore to me, your servant, by the Lord your God, Solomon your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adjaniah has become king, and you, my lord, the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves, and sheep, and has invited all the king's son, Abathar, the priest, and Joab, the commander of the army. But he has not invited Solomon, your servant. My lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord the king is laid to rest with his ancestors, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. While he was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet arrived. And the king was told, Nathan the prophet is here. So he went before the king and bowed with his face to the ground. Nathan said, Have you, my lord the king, declared that Adjaniah shall be king after me, or after you, and that he will sit on your throne? Today he has gone down and sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep. He has invited all the king's sons and the commander of the army and Abiathar the priest. Right now they are eating and drinking with them and saying, long live King Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Sadok the priest, and Maniah the son of Jehodiah, 
and your servant Solomon, he did not fight. Is there something my lord the king has done without letting his servant know who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then David said, call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place." Then Bathsheba bowed down with her face to the ground, prostrating herself before the king and said, may my Lord, King David, live forever. King David said, call in Sadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benadiah the son of Jehoiada. And when they come before the king, he said to them, take your Lord's servant with you and have Solomon, my son, mount my own mule and take him down to Gion. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpets and shout, long live King Solomon. Then you are to go up with him. And he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaniah answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my king, so declare it. As the Lord was with my lord the king, so may he be with Solomon and make his throne even greater than the throne of my lord King David. So said the priest, Nathan the prophet Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, the Kirithites and the Perithites went down and had Solomon mount King David's mule and they escorted him to Gihon. Zedek the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet and all the people shouted, long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him playing pipes and rejoicing greatly so that the ground shook with the sound. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they were finishing their feast. On hearing the sound of the trumpet, Joab asked, what is the meaning of all this noise in the city? Even as he was speaking, Jonathan, son of Abiathar, the priest arrived. Adonijah said, come in. A worthy man like you must be bringing good news. Not at all, Jonathan answered. Our king, King David, has made Solomon king. The king has sent with him Sadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benadiah the son of Jehoiada, the Kirithites and the Pelthites, and they have put him on the king's mule. And Sadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gion. From there they have gone up cheering, and the city resounds with it. That is the noise you hear. Moreover, Solomon has taken his seat on the royal throne. Also, the royal officials have come to congratulate the Lord King David, saying, may your God make Solomon's name more famous than yours and his throne greater than yours. And the king bowed in worship on his bed and said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has allowed my eyes to see a successor on my throne today. At this, all Adonijah's guests rose in alarm and dispersed. But Adonijah, in fear of Solomon, went and took hold of the, thorn, the horns of the altar 
Then Solomon was told, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon and is clinging to the horns of the altar. He says, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. So Solomon replied, if he shows himself to be worthy, not a hair of his hair, head will fall to the ground, but if evil is found in him, he will die. Then King Solomon sent men and they brought him down from the altar and Adonijah came and bowed down to King Solomon and Solomon said, go to your home. Let's pray one more time before we unpack this together. Spirit of the living God, come and breathe and fall afresh and have your way and bring this text to life. Bring these verses to life. Bring each person in this place to life. Spirit of God, be our teacher, be our help, come and fall. I pray for a sense of wonder and awe. I pray for a sense of just still in this place and I pray against any force or evil or darkness that is opposed to what is about to be said and preached tonight. In the name of Jesus, I ask that. In the name of Jesus, I pray that. In the name of Jesus, where demons run and flee. In the name of Jesus, who is light, come and have your way in this place. And I ask this, and everyone said, Amen. A kingdom up for grabs. In this passage, there's a lot going on in this passage. I'm not even sure if you stuck with me the whole way through that. I try 50, I'm not gonna even apologize for reading 53 verses because it's God's word, it's way more important than my words and it's more important if we even just stopped and prayed and left at that. But there's a lot going on in this passage. There's a few scene changes in it. There's a bedroom with the king. Then we jump to this, his son, who is trying a coup. Then we jump back to the bedroom scene as um, the priest, or sorry, Nathan and um, Bathsheba are trying to convince David to act and to do something. But as we start off this passage, aren't you very disappointed in the David that you see? So you have to read this passage with your eyes, which I know is what we do, but you have to look at this through your eyes and the picture we get of David is not very impressive. In verses one to four, we have King David, who's Solomon's father, and all we know is that he is old, he is cold, and he is weak. Old, cold, and weak David. He's 70 years old at this stage. He's coming to the end of his life, and spoiler alert next week, in chapter two, you will find out that he dies. He is at the end of his life. David is old, he's cold, and he's weak. And he can't get any warmth into him at all, regardless of how many duvets they put over him. And there's this kind of disturbing and creepy part of the story where they go out and they employ this young, beautiful virgin girl to basically act as a human hot water bottle to David. And it's disturbing, and it's creepy, 
and it's not what we do today. There was medical stuff, I hope not. There was medical evidence back in the day where this was actually a good thing. But we don't do those things today. So here we have a cold David. But he wasn't always cold. He used to be rather warm-blooded. He used to be a warm-blooded man's man who, as a child, fought lions and bears. As a teenager, he fought a nine-foot-seven giant called Goliath. As a man in his 20s, he headed up armies. He fought many, many enemies. And at age 30, he becomes a mighty, strong king. He wasn't always cold. He used to be a warm-blooded ladies' man. He had a lustful appetite, a strong, lustful appetite. But it seems in this passage, in verses 1 to 4, that there are no amount of blankets, no amount of fleecy PJs, and no beauty that can arouse or revive David. It's a rather sad and pathetic picture, but it wasn't always that way. David is actually one of the greatest kings probably ever to have reigned or to have ruled on this earth. Definitely in Bible times, definitely in the Bible story that we have, he was the greatest king. He brought strength. He brought stability. He brought economic greatness. He brought political greatness. He brought military might. He brought a reformation to religion and to worship and changed the whole thing by writing poems or writing songs for worship. He was a visionary. He was a courageous leader. He grew his kingdom and brought health, wealth, and prosperity to all his subjects. David's reign at its was marked by greatness. But here we are in this passage and the years have taken their toll. It might have been marked by greatness, but there's also scandal in the middle of his reign as well. As he abuses his power, he abuses his position, and he abuses Bathsheba, the same Bathsheba that is in this passage, has an affair with her, gets her pregnant, tries to solve things by killing her husband and lying and carrying on as king as usual as if nothing had happened until he got called out by a prophet called Nathan, same guy in this passage. And that affair wreaked havoc in David's life. There's the rise of David, the fall of David, and then a bit of a rise again. But this wreaked havoc in his life. His home life, was marked by internal, effect, internal feuds. He had many wives. And if you read different accounts of how he was as a father, he comes across as quite a complacent father. He definitely, in this passage, comes across as complacent because the main character, his son, who is trying to rebel against him, he never once called him out. He does that with some of his other sons never calls them out, never challenges them on some of their most serious sins. So it seems that David knows how to control a kingdom, but he just cannot control his own family. And here we are in 1 Kings 1, 40 years later from David becoming king, and he's old and he is 
cold. And here's how one commentator summarizes the whole start of this chapter. The chapter opens with a pathetic picture of Israel's monarch. The king is a very old man whose preoccupation is keeping himself warm. The world, his world, has become extremely small. It's composed of his attendants who fuss over his bedclothes and a pretty girl appointed to wait on him. The king is unable, or sorry, the king is unaware of a world beyond his bedroom. But beyond his bedroom in the corridors of the palace, you can imagine them talking. You can imagine another delivery of another duvet coming and people starting to think, I think that's the fourth duvet that's come this week. What is wrong with this guy? It's like a sauna in this place and he's still cold. He's old, isn't he? He's old. I think he's going to die soon, the whispers start. And people begin to talk because people love to talk and people love to guess and people love to assume and people love to predict what might happen next. I tell you one person who isn't sitting around talking, isn't sitting around guessing, it's our main character here, Adonijah. He's the fourth son. David's three sons before that, they're all dead. So technically, Adonijah is the next in line to be king. But here's the problem for him. The kingdom has already been promised to someone else, and it's Solomon. But the thing about Solomon is that Solomon's his 10th son. So you can imagine if you're the brother, you're kind of going, hmm, that doesn't seem very fair. He's not sitting about, he sees a royal vacancy here, and he wants to pounce. He doesn't go on a campaign trail, he doesn't hand out flyers saying, Ajaniah, for king, he goes and makes himself king in this passage. David might be cold, but I tell you who's not cold? Our boy, Ajaniah, because in verse 6 it says he's pretty hot. He's handsome. He may or may not be a good king, but at least he'd be nice to look at. Before we even have time to get our heads around what is going on, because it happens so fast. Before we even get a chance to get our heads around this, Adoniah has printed invites to a thick ceremony that he wants to ensure that he becomes king. But not everyone gets an invite to this coronation. There's only a few select people who get an invitation to this. Not receiving an invite to the party in verse 8 is the prophet Nathan, because along with Sadok the priest and Benaiah and Shimei and Rea and the king's bodyguards, they refuse to support what is going on. They don't like this forced takeover of the kingdom and they're not happy. But Ajaniah goes on regardless. He gets a group of yes men around him that will encourage him to do what he wants to do and off he goes to have his party. In verse 10, Solomon is also among the list of those that don't get invited. He wants to remove the threat. He might be 10th in line, but Ajaniah doesn't want him to be anything near this coronation. In fact, if you read through this passage, Nathan's concern for Bathsheba and Solomon is their life. So therefore, we take from that that Ajaniah wants to kill both Bathsheba and Solomon remove all threats to him coming king. 
So with a bit of plotting, with a bit of scheming, with a bit of manipulation, and with a selective invitation, Ajaniah becomes king. And if you look at this passage again, it would seem that he is the one that has all the control. He is the one that has all the power in this. It would seem that it is unstoppable. His kingdom seems unstoppable in this. David's too old to do anything. Solomon hardly says two words in this whole chapter. Nobody seems to be concerned. No one seems to be reacting. No one seems to be doing anything, and Ajaniah just gets to go ahead and become king. But what is this chapter really about? Is it just about a dysfunctional family? Is it just about this struggle for power? What is really going on in this chapter? So here's the question I have. Who is really in charge? And as you sit there or as you listen, who would you say is really in charge in this passage? It seems that Ajaniah is really in charge in this passage. But we're introduced to five verses in this that tells us who is really in charge. Or that's the question that gets asked in these five verses. So look at verse 13. So Nathan informs Bathsheba that Bathsheba is to go to the king and say to him, my lord the king, did you not make a vow and say to me, your son Solomon will surely be the next king and will sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Verse 13 is asking, who is really in charge? Then verse 17, Bathsheba then asked David, my lord, you made a vow before the Lord your God when you said to me, your son Solomon will surely be the next king and will sit on my throne. Verse 17 is asking, who is really in charge, David? Verse 20, Bathsheba then continues, my Lord the king, all Israel is watching or all Israel are waiting for you to announce who will become king after you. Verse 20 is saying, who is really in charge. Verse 24, this time Nathan asks King David, my lord the king, have you decided that Ajaniah will be the next king? Verse 24, who is really in charge? And finally, verse 27, Nathan continues, has my lord the king really done this without letting any of his officials know who should be the next king? The question Repeat it five times in this is who is really in charge? And as I say, it does not seem like David is in charge. And it does not seem that Solomon is in charge. Ajaniah seems to the one holding all the control and all the power. But here's the thing with looks. Looks can be really deceiving. David may have looked like a patient in a nursing home in the first half of this chapter. But in the second half of this chapter, we see a very different David. And to the question, who is really in charge? David responds four times. Firstly, in verses 29 to 30, David vows to Bathsheba, as surely as the Lord lives who has rescued me from every danger, your son Solomon will be the next king and will sit on my throne this very day. Verses 33 to 35, David decrees, take Solomon and my officials down to Gion Spring 
Solomon is to ride on my own mule. There, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet are to anoint him king over Israel. Blow the ram's horn and shout, long live King Solomon. Then escort him back here and he will sit on my throne. He will succeed me as king for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Then again in verse 46, we read that Solomon now is the king. So who is really in charge in this chapter? Well, David is really in charge in this chapter. He might be old. He might be barking these commands from his bedroom, but he's in charge. When David speaks, people do things and things happen. And now Solomon has become king. So therefore, Solomon must be the one who is really in charge in this passage. Wouldn't you agree? But maybe the question is not is who is really in charge, but who is really, really in charge in chapter one. Does that make sense? So it looks like David or Solomon are now in charge, but who is really, really in charge in this chapter? Because here's the thing that we have to know to understand what is going on in this. This whole chapter is about who is in charge. Okay? Who is in charge? It's really about two kingdoms. It's about two kingdoms that are opposed to each other. It's about Ajaniah's kingdom and it's about David's kingdom and they are at war. It's about a kingdom that is opposed to David's kingdom. It is about a person who is opposed to David. It is about a person called Ajaniah who is an enemy who is trying to destroy David and trying to destroy the kingdom. Ajaniah knew that Solomon was to be king. That is why he forced things through. That is why he pushed things through. That is why he's in such a panic to act and to do and to manipulate and to scheme and to plot and to plan and get to his ceremony. He is so eager to do that and he wants to do it super quick before anyone can get in and stop him. So he is opposed to Solomon becoming king. Therefore, he is opposed to David's kingdom. And it would seem that he is grabbing and he is snatching at power and no one can stop him. Everyone is powerless against his kingdom and against his reign, so it seems. It would seem that Ajaniah's kingdom was stronger and more powerful and than David's, if looks are anything to go by. It's a kingdom that represents entitlement, that represents greed, that represents human scheming. It represents the nations. It represents those opposed to God. It represents all that is evil. David's kingdom, on the other hand, represents God's kingdom, and it represents God's plan and God's purposes. But you'd have to pause there and go, but hang on a minute, Mark. I didn't read anything about God in that chapter. And that's a great observation because we don't really see God in this passage. That's why I'm asking the question, who is really, really in charge in this? And if we dig into who is really, really in charge, we see that God is really, really in charge in this passage. And we see that God is behind the scenes, positioning and moving people into place to ensure that his choice, his king will get to the throne. And he does that with great ease. In fact, he does that in complete silence in chapter one. Unlike David, God is not 
old or weak. Unlike David, God is not oblivious to what is going on around him. Unlike Ajaniah, God is not in a panic to act. Unlike Ajaniah, God does not have to manipulate or plot or scheme. In fact, what we see in this is that anyone who plots, anyone who schemes, anyone who opposes, anyone who has a coup, everyone who uprises against God always, always fails in this because God is in control, even when things seem like they are spinning wildly out of control. And they seemed like they were spinning wildly out of control because the wrong person was sitting on the throne at one point. And isn't that what life is like? Sometimes we feel, who's really in charge? Like, who's really, really in charge here? Where is God here? Where is God in my life? Where is God in my situation? Because things are spinning wildly out of control and it does not seem that God is there. And it's in those moments that we get to look at the wrong things. And we look at fear. And when we look at fear, our faith shrinks. Or we look at our problems, and when we look at our problems, and we realize that we're just so powerless, and things seem like they are spinning wildly out of control. Because there are times in our lives where the enemy would appear to have the upper hand, just like the enemy has the upper hand in this chapter. There are times in our life where it would appear that it seems the enemy is hell-bent on destroying our lives, destroying our families, destroying you and pulling you down. There are times when the enemy seems like it is having a party with your life, and not a good type of party, a party where it is dancing and trampling and crushing over your life. But here is what chapter one is saying. It is saying that God will interrupt the enemy's party. It is saying that God will interrupt the enemy's celebration. And this is why. Remember Ajaniah? He's off celebrating that he's a king. He's in a party. He's having a crazy party. Patting himself on the back. He's boasted the whole way through this that he is the one that reigns and he is the one that rules and he is the one that is in charge. So he's having this party surrounded by chariots. Surrounded by charioteers. Full of boasting. Hell bent on destroying David's kingdom, Solomon's kingdom, and God's kingdom. He might be feasting like he is the main king in verses 11 to 41, but he is not the king. He is just a pretend king. And the party gets interrupted. It gets interrupted by louder celebration. Did you notice that? As God's king takes the throne. What is happening whenever Solomon becomes king? The entire nation are out to witness that. Not just a select few, not just a few hand-picked people, the entire nation come out and it is a crazy, loud celebration. There is a sound of celebration. There is cheering, there is joy, there is hope that is rising up in the airwaves all across the nation as Solomon becomes king. Verse 40 says that it was so joyous. This party was so loud that the entire ground was shaking, like an earthquake. The entire ground shook, and that interrupted someone else's little tiny party. 
And they sort of go, well, what is all this noise? What's all this noise that we hear? And it is the sound of God's people worshiping, the sound of God's people yelling out. This is a holy roar. A holy roar is the word I've had all week. A holy roar dominates the airwaves. And I love that because that holy roar is people unite together and worship and praise God sends the ground shaking. The ground shakes. Too often we allow the enemy to control what we listen to or what we hear. We allow the enemy to control the volume of our celebration or the volume of your worship. We allow the enemy to control circumstances in our life which makes you come here tonight and say, I don't know that I feel like worshiping. I don't know if I'm worthy enough to worship. I don't even know whether I'm a good enough singer to worship. This is a holy roar that God interrupted this party with. It's too often we allow the enemy to convince us that there is no way out. That there's no hope for you. There's no hope for your family. There's no hope for the situation that you find yourself in. I've said this before, and I'm gonna say it one more time. When the enemy rages, and they rage, you better believe that the enemy rages. Some of you know what I am talking about because the enemy hates that you are in church tonight. The enemy hates that you are worshiping God tonight. The enemy hates that you have any faith. The enemy hates that God has transformed your life. The, the enemy hates that you make a stand for him. The enemy hates that you make a witness. The enemy hates this church, hates you, wants to destroy you. So as the enemy rage, we need to remember that our God roars and will interrupt that party, will interrupt those celebrations. It's not exactly what happens in this chapter. I'm not making this up. It's there in verse 49. All of Adonai's guests jumped up in panic from the banquet table, and they quickly scattered. Another party, another celebration interrupts this celebration. And sometimes we forget the power that we have in God. Sometimes we forget the power we have, not in King David, not in King Solomon, but in the King of all kings, King Jesus. Sometimes we forget the supernatural power that we have in the Holy Spirit. Rain and row. Rain and row. The two words I had this week, couldn't shake them, they're on repeat in my head. Rain and row. God reigns and rows. God reigns and rules. Who is really in charge? God. God who reigns and rules. A God who reigns and rules over sickness. A God who reigns and rules over depression. A God who reigns and rules over addiction. A God who reigns and rules over strongholds. A God who reigns and rules over mental illness. A God who reigns and rules over marriages and over families and over brokenness and over darkness and over evil and over sin and over death. A God who reigns and rules over your struggles and your difficulties and your hardships. A God who reigns and rules over this church. A God who reigns and rules over this community. A God who reigns and rules over the streets around here. A God who reigns and rules in your family. A God who reigns and rules over all things. And we need to know that. And we need to believe that. 
And we need to stop listening to the lies of the enemy that says that is not true. God reigns and God rules. Because here's the thing. There is always an Ajaniah. There is always someone who thinks that they reign and rule. There is always an enemy who thinks they reign and rule and is seeking to destroy. There is an enemy who is trying to kill the kingdom of God and take all of you with him. There is a God who reigns, or there is an enemy who thinks it reigns and rules over God's kingdom and is hell-bent on destroying believers, is hell-bent on destroying your faith, is hell-bent on making you stuck in the situation that you find yourself in. But there also is a Jesus who also has a title, the Lion of Judah, and he roars. He roars. Jesus roared at the enemy from a cross as he died for sins. He roared at the enemy because of our sins. He roared at death as he raised himself back up to life again. And one day he will roar as he returns to make all things new. Heaven roars with praise. Heaven roars with celebration as angels throw a party when one person gets saved. God reigns and rules. And we need to roar a hallelujah. We need to roar praise. The enemy needs to tremble, tremble when we gather and we sing and we worship. The enemy needs to panic and scatter because we walk in the power of God and we carry his presence. The enemy needs to tremble and flee because there is a power a greater power in the name of Jesus. The enemy needs to know that God is our help and our strength and it is God that fights our battles. We fight our battles by allowing God to fight our battles. We stand in the strength and the power of God because come what may, even if your life spins well out of control. And I realize who I'm speaking tonight and I realize some of the suffering and some of the brokenness and some of the stuff that goes on and and it could be easy for you to listen to this sermon and just go, well, you want me to roar at that, Mark? You want me to roar at that? Like, seriously? That's what you want? That's your advice? That's your takeaway from the sermon tonight? Go and, go and roar at my illness? Go and roar at my situation? Go and roar at that? Is, is that your advice to me tonight? I just have this thing where we need to celebrate who we are in Christ. And we need to roar that at the enemy. Yes, we hurt Yes, we get sick. Yes, people we love get ripped away from us. But we need to roar back at the enemy that he does not own this. He does not own this territory. Because come what may, there will be a day when the loudest roar will come from the sound of every single knee in the world bowing. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth bowing before our God. And then the next roar will come as every tongue, every person, 
every tribe, every president, every politician, every CEO, every unemployed person, every single, single person in the world will say, praise be to our God and declare that Jesus is Christ to the glory of God our Father. So roar this week. As you pray, I think you can roar as you pray. I've walked around these streets this week. Like I haven't been walking around roaring because that would be weird. But it just inwardly, this, I don't know, know, just inwardly just walking around defiant against the enemy. Not because I'm awesome, I'm not. My God is awesome and he is powerful and he is supernatural. And walking around that and for too long the enemy has taken control. For too long, the enemy has said, this city belongs to me, this culture belongs to me, the government belongs to me, the decisions that made belong to me. And we look on as Christians and think, what on earth can we do? Roar, roar in prayer, roar on your knees, roar. Do not let the enemy triumph. Do not let the enemy win this battle because we are on the right side of history. We are on the winning side. Our God reigns. Our God rules. Whatever the situation is in your home, God reigns and God rules. This city, this streets, this community, this church, God reigns and God rules. Roar that at the enemy this week. Roar that at the enemy this week. Roar that at the enemy this week. Let's pray.